Dr. Kristen Oja here, entrepreneur and functional medicine expert. Welcome to Little By Podcast, where our goal is to empower you to achieve optimal health, one step and one episode at a time. Taking a functional medicine approach will cover a variety of health and wellness topics, from how to optimize performance to how to balance your hormones and everything in between. This podcast is for educational purposes only, so please be sure to consult your healthcare provider before incorporating any changes into your daily routine. Now grab your headphones and let's go for a walk as we take steps towards becoming your best self. You guys know I'm obsessed with the Enneagram and just kind of how the brain works as a whole. We at STAT have been getting so into the central nervous system, the vagus nerve. And as you guys know, we do Enneagram testing on every employee. And it's been such a valuable tool uh, for me and Cam, our marriage. It's been such a valuable tool in kind of learning how to lead and approach our employees. And so I'm really pumped for this episode with Dr. Jerome. And he's really referred to as the patient doctor. And it's really because of his own quest for neurological well-being that led him to really specialize in complex, unresolved neurological cases. Uh, He really exists to create spaces that guarantee that people feel safe and loved. And you guys are just going to hear this throughout the episode. Um, He has this calming energy about him that just makes you immediately feel safe and cared for. Uh, His practice really explores how functional neurology, neuroplasticity, and tools like the Enneagram can really improve holistic well-being. Dr. Jerome created and released the first ever neuroscience-based model of Enneagram in his book, The Brain-Based Enneagram. I highly suggest getting this book. I was actually gifted it, which you'll hear us talk about in this episode, by our dietitian, Sarah Genka. And it's just great. So make sure to check out The Brain-Based Enneagram. Uh, I think you'll really like it. And he you know, really describes himself as a functional neurologist. And it's really shown him that the healing we once thought was impossible is actual actually possible. This neuroblasticity tells us that we are capable of change. If we understand the function of the brain, we can improve our way of life, uh, which is powerful. It's very hopeful. It's very inspiring. I've already uh, referred several patients over to him. But Dr. Jerome, he lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, he's been with his wife for 18 years. Her name is Deborah, and they have three kids, Bennett, Maggie, and Finley. And I'm going to link in the show notes, his practice. I'm going to put the link for the brain-based Enneagram, uh, but reach out if you have any questions. And I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And I could have talked to him for hours. So let's get into the episode. You guys know I nerd out about the Enneagram and I know superficially about the Enneagram. And through this conversation I've been having, I've learned how superficial I know the Enneagram, but we're here with the like Enneagram expert, Dr. Jerome, and we are going to be talking about how the Enneagram is connected to some physical elements and his experience with functional neurology, this kind of mapping he can do. We're going to nerd out all about the Enneagram. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm super excited. So I joke that the Enneagram saved my marriage. Like it just like allowed me to know that like we're very uniquely different people. And I think there's something so comforting when you're having conflict or conversations or when I'm meeting with a patient, right? Even on a clinician level that it's like our needs, our desires, what fills us are different. So you've been into Enneagram for 12 years. Like I, right. I think that's what we were saying. I think 15. Yeah. I just did the math again. And I I think COVID is, has consistently made a three year gap in my, in my knowledge base, (laughs) but because it's 2024, it started in 2009. Yeah. I didn't even know the Enneagram was around. Yeah. It's, it's argued to have been around for some people say several thousand years. Some people say several, several hundred, but the easiest context is uh, mid to mid to late sixties in Berkeley, California. So it's been around for you know more than fifty years, functionally in the U.S. Yeah. Well, and what got you into bringing it into like a clinical setting and just all of the research you've done, the books you've written, like how did you or what made you connect this? Yeah, I, I actually ended up having a really unsolicited 
uh, intersection with it and, and two other things. So I, I was finishing my doctorate in chiropractic, but also doing a dual postgrad study in functional neurology and ended up doing a lot of work in the world of functional neurology and active clinical care for complex cases. And when I was in the middle of a neurochemistry postgrad, it's a, sepa- a, second, a secondary or postdoctorate piece, I was learning all of these pieces about the neurochemistry at the same time as the functional neurology. And a buddy of mine called me, he lives in Spain, and he was proselytizing me about this Enneagram thing for six months. And he goes, hey, I know you love how the brain works. I think this is for you. I don't know why. And I said, look, man, I'm neck deep in 120 credits per calendar year, and I commute two hours minimum a day from Norcross, Georgia to Marietta, Georgia. And he goes, well, why don't I get you an audio recording and you can listen to it on your drive? And I was like, fine, I'm very high in two, six, and nine. So I was like, I I will guarantee that I will do this. I'll give you my word and we'll create some peace in this. So I listen to this recording and the exact same time that I'm learning the functional neurology and all of these other pieces, I get a 10 hour recording of Richard Rohr teaching the Enneagram. So I got introduced to Richard Rohr and the Enneagram at the same exact time. And while I was listening to it, I'm going, God, this sounds a lot like really basic brain function. It sounds like how we think and how we feel and how we act. These three intelligence centers sound like really high level departments inside how the brain works. And so I go home and I, I, I look at a picture of the Enneagram for the first time because I've listened to seven hours of this recording and I haven't even seen a picture of it. And the very first time I looked at it, I was like, oh, this is a brain, but it's upside down. So I flipped it upside down and then I inverted it horizontally so that the thinking center is on the left, the feeling center is on the right, and the doing center is on the bottom, overlaid a basic brain on top of it with left hemisphere, right hemisphere, and like brainstem function. Spent the next three hours just putting a couple of notes on it. And I still call my buddies in Spain and go, I love you and I hate you because (laughs) I, I have not stopped thinking about that particular moment in Smyrna in 2009. And that was 15 years ago. And it's evolved into this thing now where we actually use my personal kind of approach to it called the whole identity profile as an intake diagnostic for literally every patient that we see. And it's like an fMRI for somebody's identity and how that's impacting their physiology, their mental and emotional health. And it is wild. I've done probably over 1500 now in the last 15 years. And it's, um, it's been really, really wild, but I blame Sean Cham Smith and Mijas Pueblo for, (laughs) for all of this. Well, and I think that's really interesting, the brain. Like, I've never heard that with Enneagram when you look at it. That's, like, already a very creative way of bringing into functional neurology. So how much in your experience of this is nurture versus nature? Like, how much are we just instinctively born versus kind of developed in those young years? Yeah, I think one of the things that I always uh, tell everybody, Dr. Kristen, is that any answer that you give should always have at least three components minimum. If you only have one component, you've probably oversimplified it. There's nothing that's an absolute ever. Um, So it is nature and it's nurture and it's discipline-based conditioning or practice. So from an Enneagram perspective, your nature side of things is the component of how you physically are built in the factory. That's just your DNA, it's your genetics, it's the nature of who you are. The nurture is the relational side of things. It's the heart center. It's how you feel. It's how you connect to other people. And then the discipline-based conditioning is the head center. It's, well, what have you practiced? What is your relationship with discipline? What is your relationship with being disciplined by another person or being disciplined as an individual? So you can look at nature, nurture, and discipline-based conditioning. And depending on how much or how little you've had of each, how safe or unsafe each of those have been, it'll give you kind of an aggregate because I tell people all the time, kind of like you mentioned with uh, it saved your marriage and with the patients that we see, uh, life is complex, but it doesn't have to be complicated. So yes. figuring out the difference between nurture and nature, I say, what is your relationship with nurture and people? What is your relationship with process and the actual, you know, I've had six head injuries. My twin brother has never had any. I got run over by a car when I was eight. My twin brother did not because he was a terrible spotter and we were sharing a bike. (laughs) But I've had some structural damage that he hasn't. So the nature, the limitation of matter in my body is different. Also, our way of being in relationship with other human beings is similar but different. And then our experience with discipline, we had the exact same encounters with my dad, but had very, very, very different experiences. 
So nature, nurture, and discipline-based conditioning or practice is another way of saying discipline-based conditioning. Those three things will give you kind of a high-level perspective of how you show up in each Can a life event like a brain injury or maybe something that's not so structural, but a trauma, can it change your like Enneagram mapping or, okay. Yeah. And this is, this is one of the biggest things that I tried to evolve in the, in the language of the Enneagram. One, you're not a type to tell somebody they're a type oversimplifies the complexity of what it means to understand the brain. Um, But really more than anything, it's like, oh, no, we can change. We can dramatically change. I mean, the interesting thing is the Enneagram, modern day Enneagram doesn't exist without the modern day field of psychology and neuropsychology. Well, the field of neuropsychology was built off of a, it's arguably rooted in the story around a guy named Phineas Gage who was a railroad worker who was hammering in a steel rebar next to a dynamite Mm -hmm. stick, which was the way they used to do it. He detonated the dynamite. The rebar went up through his jaw, out through his head, and it ended up boring a hole through his frontal lobe, his orbitolateral prefrontal cortex, basically the part that goes, maybe not today. Here's a brake pedal. Um, And he went into that injury being the person in town that every mom wanted their daughter to marry. And he came out of that injury the Hulk, like the Jekyll and Hyde conversation. He was a carouser and a drunkard and couldn't stop cursing because he lost his brake pedal. He functionally, structurally lost his brake pedal. So I tell people all the time, we've got so much evidence nowadays that the brain will change in a moment. All of us, I've been married almost 20 years. You've been married over a decade. You've been together with your husband for a while. All of us who have been in a relationship for more than a week know that sometimes <laughs> things go a little sideways. You get a little heated or you shut down or you you figure out a way to show up that isn't exactly the most mature version of yourself. And what we're finding nowadays, as an example, just quickly for a data point, they're showing nowadays with head injury, it's not a matter of if, but how bad is your depression going to be? Yes. Depression is a consequence of a head injury. But they're also finding out now that if you have a significant enough mental and emotional trauma that you can have post-concussive symptoms and post-concussive syndrome without a physical impact. So you can re-concuss after a concussion just off of stressors, but you can also experience concussion-like symptoms off of significant mental or emotional stress. So the idea of us changing in relationship to what's happened in our life is true. We're that organic. So can the Enneagram change? For sure. The science behind it is called limbic attachments or trauma events. Um, But there's so much good evidence that the safer that you feel, your personality will change. The more unsafe you'll feel, your personality will change. And that can be mental, emotional, or physical changes that, that can move you towards a healthier version or away from a healthier version. And you'll show up differently in each of those contexts. Do you recommend, because we both like the ready. I know we we're talking about that. That's what we do on all of our employees here. Yeah. Uh, do you suggest retaking it like every couple of years based on life and seasons? And- yeah. I actually recommend taking it once a year so that you have kind of a, a frame of reference. Kind of like if you do a comprehensive bio screen on somebody and you're like, hey, man, I just want to check your thyroid levels once yeah. a year. Sometimes we need to check it every six months if you're working through something really significant. The The circumstances dictate the need for additional data points. And this is coming from somebody whose lowest number is a five. So yes. I get it. But it's the maturity and knowing, hey, I, I'm not the same person that I was when I was 20. I'm not the same person that I was when I was 30. I've been married for 19 years and I'm 40. My wife is 38. We're different people than we were when we first got married. So knowing that we're evolving and going, hey, I just want to check in. I just want an idea of where I'm at. Also, I do what's called a whole identity profile. It's a proprietary process that I kind of created to to answer these questions that I couldn't find answers to. And instead of looking at your type, you have all nine Enneagram types and also three instincts. They're all mapped out together and it gives you a global perspective. It's kind of like doing a census on the population of the planet. And you're going, oh, over the course of the last three years, because of COVID, more people moved out of my personal three real estate and into a nine real estate because my desire to succeed was functionally impacted in a way that lowered it as a priority, but my desire for peace and a lack of conflict and a lack of stress, and even my willingness to practice slowing down changed. So over the course of the last three years, I've seen my relationship with nine and three change a lot based on the circumstances. But one of the reasons to do that is an oversimplified way for the folks who are listening to understand is if you look at all of the information, all nine types on all three instincts, 
think of it like fluencies and think of it like dialects. Everybody speaks their own language. And if you live in one part of the world, man, you can live in Atlanta, Georgia and have an amazing life. But if you travel to Spain like I do and you don't speak Spanish, you're either going to need a translator or you're going to have to pick up some Spanish. Mm -hmm. My twin brother speaks Spanish fluently because he's lived there for years. So if I'm very high in two and I'm very low in four, and I want to go into a place that says, hey, the only thing that we're going to do is go into the depth of a conversation that requires you to intimately explain to somebody the depth of your pain and your suffering in a way that makes it primarily about you. And no one can do anything to fix it. I need to know that for me personally, that's going to be more challenging than you saying, can you help me? And I go, absolutely. Right. And that makes you a better person, right? Like, and so when you're looking at like the whole identity, there's actually a lot more wins in understanding your lowest one, right? And some of the areas that may push you. Yeah. I think there's so many opportunities. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the case of like one of the other things we were talking about before we started recording is when you look at the whole map, just think you have pilots, co-pilots, flight attendants, and passengers. Everybody's on board. Everybody's got baggage. So if I want everyone to have a safer and a more healthy conversation and an evolved version of themselves, I mean, think about, about running a company. I, I've been running a company for 10 years and I've had four different companies that I'm working through. If the only person on my team I'm interested in is myself as a CEO, the likelihood of me having a poor cultural experience is pretty high. <laughs> right. Me, be, I might have a great experience, but the culture around me won't. So leadership, whether it's a family unit, it's a business, it's it's a fill in the blank, there's an opportunity to go. The, the more that I have an understanding of what is happening internally in my company, in my system, in myself, I have a higher probability of moving forward in a way that is more efficient, it's more healthy, it's more well-rounded. Because one of the phrases that we use is a lot of the times in the Enneagram, people get introduced to it and there's a lot of shame. It's like, oh, hell, I'm a fill in the blank, right? And I think it's because we have so much language around there's something wrong with you, there's something broken with you that needs to be fixed. And the reality is, is you're not intrinsically broken. There's not something intrinsically wrong with you. You are not a damaged person. You are a person who has been damaged or has been broken by something else. So it's not about being less broken. It's about becoming more whole. And if you want to be a more whole person, a more holistic person, a more healthy person, uh, it is more relevant not to make a diagnosis off of a single lab value. You probably need some more information so that you can make a more comprehensive decision, especially if you intend to travel outside of your kind of fixed arena. If you want to have a conversation with a spouse or a coworker that requires you to ask clarifying questions, you're like, I don't, I don't really, I don't really care that much about the details. Well, you realize you just lost $75,000 in the last month because you forgot to read a contract. Maybe that information can inform you that that's not your strong suit. Finding people on your team that can do that for you is really good. But you don't know that because you don't know that your lowest number is five. Right. So knowing that can be really helpful. The lowest numbers are quintessentially the least practiced or the least fluent in an outside. You, you practice it less on the outside. So you don't talk to other people about it. So whatever is the least practice is oftentimes going to be the most difficult, either for a lack of practice or because there's been legitimately uncomfortable experiences there. So whenever you know your whole kind of spectrum, especially you know your lowest numbers, especially in a setting like we have in practices, it can be very, very, very helpful to know where you fatigue the fastest so that when you go into that space, you don't feel like you've missed something obvious because you can't power through it. No, it's a chance to honor the fact that that's just not something I have a strength in yet. And I love just how dynamic that is. Like we were chatting, I'm a seven. You guys have heard me talk about that a lot. I'm very comfortable in a positive space. I'm very comfortable taking risk. I'm very, you know, comfortable with opportunity and going and speaking in front of people. I am not as comfortable when people want to know deep feelings that I've not thought about. Like my, my, if you ask me how I'm doing, I'm good, right? Like that's it. But when some life throws different things at you and you get to feel the range of emotions of, you know, pain to a deeper degree, you are working that muscle that, you know, before maybe I'm forced to, I made a mistake and signed a document. I shouldn't now I'm forced to get into the investigator, right? Like yeah. you need to read and research. And so I like how you said, it's really, it's an opportunity. And, um, he was telling me like a very mature question is like, how could we do this differently? Like someone that's a seven, like me being able to meet with the team and having those conversations about processes and systems, like that was even eye opening to me, but I love the dynamicness of it, that it's 
not black and white. There is yeah. nothing black and white about the Enneagram yeah. or personalities no, or I, us. Or us. I mean, I, I have three kids that are under 10 and I've, my first child is now 31. I, I became his surrogate um, when he was 12 and I was 21. My wife and I took full guardianship of him when he was 12 and raised him. And he's got a five-year-old. So I became a functional grandparent at 36 because both of his parents have passed. And I look at him with a five-year-old and I see him as a 12-year-old. And as a parent with kids that are th three kids under 10, I think it's always amazing that we hit this spot as adults that we think that we've got some sort of fixed identity. And it's like my three-year-old has a completely different strategy with language than my six-year-old, a completely different strategy than my eight, almost nine-year-old. We used completely different strategies when we were 20 compared to 30 compared to 40. It's okay to recognize that we're evolving on a regular basis. The question isn't whether or not we're changing. The question is, are we changing into a healthier version of ourselves? That's different, but the change is always going to happen. I'm a different person than I was when we started this conversation 10 minutes ago. I work in a world of functional neurology where you have to see if you can change somebody's capacity to stand in the same session. They close their eyes and they're going to fall down and hurt themselves. 10 minutes later, they close their eyes and they feel stable for the first time in a decade because the brain is so dynamic that it can change so quickly that we think that we won't modify the way that we show up based on our environment. Of course we will. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, see which version of you shows up. Well, and I think about like even in the most simple way when you're bringing in the just like basic standing I feel like I'm seeing more and more correlations with some of my patients and certain Enneagram types, which of course, like you mentioned, we're not just one, but the, you know, number one, for example, the reformer that it's never good enough, you know, when they're in the state of perfectionism and always seeking to do it better, yeah. you know, we'll see adrenal dysfunction, right? We'll see maybe some blood sugar issues. We'll see some of these things because in my mind, that personality type is always, it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. And that will get the nervous system in a state of fight or flight, right? Yeah. It's a hyper, the, the one is is more connected to a hypervigilance than, than any other, other gut centers because there is a way to do things and there is a proper way to do things. And then you need to get that to stay that way. So change is very, very hard when you're in a space that you need things to be consistent. You need the process to be consistent because if it's reproducible, then it's safe. And if it changes, even if it gets faster or slower, the change causes a response in your system that goes, but when it changes, something feels wrong. And it's like, no, well, maybe if we change speed and we slow down, but we do it on purpose. We change speed and we speed up, but we do it on purpose. If someone in a one space who is a gut center, they're reacting. Their reaction is to do whatever gives them the highest probability of making things stick and stay the same. So when they get surprised by a change that they didn't anticipate or they didn't plan or they didn't do on purpose, it's going to take their body a time frame to digest that that's different than other types, different than other numbers. Well, and this might not be the right terminology, but like if you see that patient, are you striving to make them a healthier one or are you striving to maybe balance out like on simple, simple ways I think about this. And again, might not be the right terminology is when I get my Enneagram report, I get numbers, right? I'm like yeah. 28, 27, 26. So simply thinking like, are we trying to pull some of the strengths of all of these Enneagrams to become more balanced? Or are we trying to understand what does it mean to be a one and how do we become a healthier version of ourselves in this life? Like, it, yeah. does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it does make sense. One of the phrases that I would give you that you can actually correlate really quickly on the Enneagram and do functionally in a clinical practice or really any anywhere that you're you're operating, but it's a lot more obvious in clinical practice, especially when you're doing movement-based work like we're doing, um, is no number, no type stays healthy by staying inside its number. So the answer isn't necessarily becoming a healthier version of that number or a better version of that number. It's being aware of what resources exist that you can integrate. Another way of thinking about that is every type, I don't care what type you are on the Enneagram, you have four nonstop flights, all of them do. You've got two wings and then you've got two connecting lines. So one, for instance, has a nine on one side and a two on the other side. It also connects to a four, it also connects to a seven. So in that situation, the one can go, what is a question, what is a thing that I could do, because they're process oriented, what is a thing that I could do 
that would effectively allow me to be a better version of myself as it relates to nine as an adjective or two as an adjective or four as a resource or seven as a resource. So a really easy way to say about that is a one can go to a seven and go, when's the last time I allowed myself to even consider a win? Just allow myself to consider, is there anything that I would celebrate? Because oftentimes somebody go, is there anything worth celebrating? And the answer for one is no, because everything isn't right. That's an absolute answer. It is true, but it's not nuanced. So it's saying, is there something that I would consider celebrating for 30 seconds? So that's a process question for a seven. Can I take one deep intentional breath? That's a nine question. Can I ask myself why this bothers me so much when it isn't done properly? It's a four question. Am I giving myself a chance to say, oh, how am I taking care of myself today? Is this an effective way for me to care for myself the right way? What is the right way for me? So you can leverage the need to be right. You can leverage the desire to be a better version of yourself. I think the healthiest question for one is to, sit, to change the word better or worse, good or bad to different. How can I do this differently? That is the healthiest thing that a one can do. But realistically, any number that you go to, and we can spend days talking about it, but any number that you're in, just ask yourself what a question around the wings that are next to it, the, the, the neighbors, what do they think? What would they offer you if you needed to borrow some sugar from that particular neighbor? <laughs> and then the two connecting lines, which a lot of people call growth and stress lines, I actually call them lines of maturity um, and resource lines. You use both at the same time. Um, but that's a bigger conversation for another time. Just know that in your number, if if you want to move into an evolved, healthier version of yourself, the, the two biggest things that I would say is the healthiest thing that someone can do is increase their self-awareness. It is hands down proven in the science that the healthiest version of you is a person who has increased self-awareness. And if you're like, well, how do I become more self-aware? Realize that whatever your pilot is, whatever your type is, whatever you say you are when you go, I am a, that answer has four nonstop flights to other regions that you can also import and export some resources to and from. Tell me a little bit about the wings. Cause I was under the impression that you kind of went towards one side mm -hmm. and you're kind of using it more fluid that you could pull either. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, this is coming from the fact that this is all based in the science behind what's called the default mode network or a connectome. Yep. So I live in Atlanta and I live in East Atlanta, downtown, seven minutes from the, the capital. Um, and my older brother lives in East Cobb, right? Traffic in East Cobb doesn't normally affect East Atlanta, but traffic in Atlanta is rough. Traffic is all, every everything in Atlanta is affected by traffic in Atlanta, right? So you're in, in Atlanta is an hour from Atlanta kind of joke. But for instance, when 85 collapsed, uh, the, the major highway and thoroughfare going downtown, yes. that affected more than just four or five miles of road. So it's this idea of going, most of the time, we don't feel the impact of one region in another region because the impact isn't significant enough. But I promise you, if somebody has a psychological or physiological trauma, a head injury or an emotional trauma, they lose a family member, they lose a job, or they lose hope, or they lose health, it's going to impact more than just the region you live in, just the neighborhood that you drive around. Yes. So it's this idea of going, I cannot have an experience in the brain, in the body, in isolation. It doesn't work that way. So knowing that everything is connected, everything is involved, but maybe not everything's speaking at the same volume, right? So for instance, I'm highest in a two. A lot of people think I'm highest in a five because of the work that I do. It's actually my lowest number. <laughs> it takes a lot of work, which is why I have to rest a lot after I take care of complex cases because I've put a lot into it. But my three is a lot higher than my one. But what I need to know as a two, somebody who's functioning as a two, and that's my pilot, is I'm really comfortable with creating care for people. That's the three and the creativity, the care and the two. I love the idea of being able to see my patients succeed. That's a two with a three wing. But the thing that is very critically important for me is I have to do things properly. I can't just be in relationship with them. Two and three are both in a heart center. Those are relational spaces. I will always be able to build rapport with the patient. But if I know that my one is not as high, I sure as hell be to be very, very careful about whether or not I give them a practical way to do what it is that I'm inspiring them with or whatever it is that I'm encouraging them in. The one is a process-driven number. So me being high in two and going, oh, I'm a two with a three wing then I'm going to spend the rest of my life in a heart center with no idea about what I'm thinking or what I'm doing, because neither of those numbers are in thinking and doing centers. So stepping back from all of that and going, do I think, 
Do I feel? Do I act? Do I have thoughts? Do I have emotions? Do I have sensations? My mental, emotional, and physical experience. Those things are all examples of the intelligence centers. So if you don't know at minimum the difference in overall score or the difference in overall volume or activity and activation, if you take a ready and you just add the numbers in the intelligence centers, add eight, nine, and one, add two, three, and four, add five, six, and seven. Just take those three numbers and see how close they are. And whatever that is, is a reflection of how quickly you think, how quickly you feel emotionally, and how quickly you act based on what you're sensing in your body. Just those three numbers, if that's the only thing you know, will change the entire way you engage in the world. Because you go, oh man, I act way faster than I think or feel. Yeah, you've had a lifetime of cart before the horse. Maybe you got to give yourself a second to pump the brakes on the reactivity and move into, can I ask myself a single question about what I'm feeling and just check in with my own body? When you look at the like wings and the growth stress, or like you call the um, maturity lines, which I really like, is every single type hit the brain, the body? Like yeah, it's- Always, always hits all three. You can't have a type that doesn't, that doesn't have all three centers. You can have a type that will have wings in the same center, like a nine, six, and a three have their wings in the same center. But every type connects to another intelligence center as a resource because the brain is so good at calibrating. It's so good at efficiency. Yeah. So it's always trying to go, hey, especially, I mean, a classic example is a five. Um, a five is going to connect to a seven and an eight because fives are brake pedals. They're known as withdrawal stances. So they're very, very good at saying, wait, let me think about that. But when they need to act, there's such an anchor in the mind, like your ability to really deeply understand is connected to five, but they also need support from their own body to move the conversation forward. So both of their connecting lines are gas pedals. Seven and eight is both assertive stances. So in order for a five to have enough activating in their body to move them into action. They don't need one gas pedal, they need two. But then they also have a brake pedal that helps them to calibrate in the heart, which is a four. And then they have a throttle that helps Mm -hmm. them to kind of think ahead and figure out how to do it in a six. So a four is a brake pedal, a five is a brake pedal, a six is a throttle, seven and eight are gas pedals. So a five in all of that space has two brake pedals, two gas pedals and a throttle available to it. It's always equilibrating. It is fascinating when you start to look at even just your type and the four connecting lines, how quickly you go, oh, look, there's a little bit of everything in this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as you were talking, I was just thinking about how when you're balanced with people around you that are a very maybe different type or different number, how I would imagine there's kind of two things that could happen. One, conflict or two, growth. Right. Like I, I was just like thinking as you were talking about like, huh, if I was around someone that was a five often, that was always my brake pedal and always asking the clarifying questions. You're going to trigger the hell out of each other on a regular basis. Right. But and are you growing in that? You can. I think it's, it's the growth is dependent on the safety, mm-hmm. right? You can't grow unless there's resources, there's rest, there's, uh, so we call it rest, resources, and safety. Um, a lot of different ways of looking at it, but in order to grow, there has to be, uh, like for instance, even doing workouts in, in your space, If somebody doesn't have enough fuel, they don't have nutrition, they don't have water, they don't have oxygen, they don't have fill in the blank, right? They come in and do a workout, but they're in active adrenal fatigue or ketoacidosis. It's like, you can try to grow something, but you have to have resources. You have to have all of these pieces that that kind of collectively make it possible to cultivate growth. And I think the the answer that I would give that's a a more oversimplified um, version of this is that if you are trying to accomplish something like this, the most helpful thing is to just ask yourself, what is my pace? So for instance, you have three pilots that are all gas pedals. I have fluency in a gas pedal. So, and my highest numbers are very, very heavily connected to the ability to maintain speed. A throttle maintains speed, a gas pedal increases speed, a brake pedal decreases speed. Every instinct, every type, every intelligence center on the Enneagram has a brake, a throttle, and a gas. Mm -hmm. If they're collectively working together, you can set crews and you can find your relative speed that's healthy for you. But the number one thing you can do in a conversation, it's really straightforward, is just ask yourself how quickly I move. How quickly do I walk? 
How quickly do I transition spaces? How quickly do I move through a conversation? So if I'm in a place where somebody's physical body movement doesn't move as much as mm-hmm. yours nice to, because people who are listening don't know that you're shaking your yeah. head. You're moving on a regular <laughs> right. basis. You've got your foot postured and your body shifts and I'm talking with my hands. But if I'm in conversation with any human being in my life and I can see that they want to go faster, how hard is it for me to go faster? If they want to go slower, how hard is it for me to go slower? Because you can be listening to this podcast as a brake pedal and going, I would really love if you could start to speak at a regular audiobook speed. Mm-hmm. This is actually the speed when they're narrating an audiobook that they'll communicate to the reader. And I can't do it as a person. I will do it with a person in front of me. But as a person listening to audiobooks, I start to pick up to 1.5 and I go, this is more of my speed. But reality, what I'd love to do is go to 2.5, 2.0 speed. And now I'm really processing the information so I can understand everything that's going through as quickly as possible because I've got to digest it. Because the more information I have, the faster I can feel, fix somebody, fix myself and move on through the world and feel safe. But that might not work for the person who doesn't want to listen to me talk that fast. So one of the most effective ways to do it is physically check in with your speed that you're moving and talking and see if you can calibrate. If somebody doesn't want to go so fast, ask them if you can pick up speed. And if you don't want to go slow, see if you can find a way to change your pace. Pace is everything. As somebody who's been married for 20 years and has been in a lot of spaces as a spouse, but also as a clinician, I've had more success as a parent, as a partner, as a provider, as a person, just being able to quickly gauge what speed am I going? And is this the right speed for the space that I'm in? Because, oh, I just realized I'm going 90 in a school zone. That's going to get me a ticket. Or I'm going 40 on the highway. I either need to get off or I got to speed up. But just that idea of how fast you're going relationally and environmentally when you're talking to somebody, whoever they may be, can really change how you do things. That's like a phenomenal question. I was just, all the things are coming into my mind of even work environments, right? your boss, your employees, your coworkers, like if people are mismatched on pace all the time, like that may be a bigger issue than personalities. And, you know, cause if we could slow our pace to make a five feel comfortable, then the five feels safe. Yeah. Right. Verse. I love this question um, that I heard someone say is like, if you were given a blank piece of paper, what would you think? Would you be stressed out that, okay, there's no instructions on here? Like, what am I supposed to do with this blank piece of paper? Like, I'm panicking. Like, I don't know what to do with this blank piece of paper. I'm like, oh my gosh, the opportunity in that. Like, what you could write, what you could do, you know? And I just, like, I think about so much of this going back to what you said is a couple of things that are my takeaways from what you're saying so far is that, like, anything is possible with a safe space. So, like, you have to be safe to grow. Like, so thinking about the culture we create at Stout Wellness, the culture I create at home with my husband and my two girls, the culture I create with my extended family, like, is it a safe place for us to grow together? I think that's like a huge thing. And then two, I am full throttle all the time. My husband's always like, you were a pusher, like you were a pusher, you were a get it done. How is that pace impacting those around me? Like those are two, like if we think about as a space safe for growth, yeah. anything's possible. And are we working at a pace where everybody's comfortable? Yeah. At least comfortable to express things. <laughs> yeah, and, to move, and that's the thing. I mean, what you're talking about that's really important is we have a whole process in the clinic that we walk people through because I specialize in complex trauma. I, ah. I specialize in complex cases that have been unresolved everywhere else. You know, my my story is I went to 26 providers over a decade and spent $100,000 to get a name only to be told we don't know what to do with that. <laughs> so I attract what I am. I attract people who are like, no one knows what's happening. I'm like, yeah, that's that makes sense. I've, I've been there, still doing that now. Um, averaging 10 to 12 full-blown migraines per calendar month because I've had six head injuries. I got run over by a car. Um, I got hit by a drunk driver at 17 and 20. My body's been through things, right? Um, and why I say that is one of the things that we help people in the clinic understand is there's a difference between hard, hurt, and harm. Some things are hard. Some things are going to hurt. You can't come into a practice like yours or mine and not expect to hurt. You're going to do work. You're going to strain a muscle and it's going to hurt, right? You're going to get yourself outside of your comfort zone. It's going to hurt. The key is that we want to try and do everything we can to avoid or recover from harm. And resilience in my, my definition is knowing the difference between discomfort and trauma as quickly as possible. If it hurts for 30 days or less, it is not trauma, full stop. If it hurts for more than 30 days, 
it's going to be trauma based on how long it takes for you to recover. Mm -hmm. But when we're in these places, when you're talking about pace and you're talking about culture and you're talking about the idea of safety, I think a lot of the time, especially nowadays, we think that safety is the absence of conflict and the absence of pain. It's actually that safety is the ability to encounter conflict and encounter pain and navigate through it in a way that does not result in trauma you may feel like it's hard. You may even feel like it hurts. It may even harm you. But if it doesn't last for more than 30 days, it is not trauma. So we've got to figure out a way how we can navigate all of these places and go, okay, I can tell my spouse that really, that more than hurt. Uh, that's going to take me probably two or three weeks to get over. That's Now we're talking, that's an injury. Right. If I'm doing a workout in your gym and I sprain something and it takes me three weeks to stand properly, I've injured mm -hmm. myself. I can have a friend or a coworker or a boss or a partner injure me, but the key is understanding there's a difference between somebody saying something hard, somebody hurting you, somebody injuring you, and somebody traumatizing you. And if you can find ways through tools like the Enneagram or you know practices like ours that help to educate people to go, oh, I'm learning to be more fluent in hard, hurt, and harm, and all of those things may not necessarily compromise my safety, but a non-negotiable is I'm not going to traumatize myself or somebody else, and maybe I'll even spend some time working through the trauma that I have experienced that I maybe haven't resolved. Those things so can make you healthy for sure. Is this a critical time in that 30 days to seek, like if 30 days is kind of this magic number of like when something does become more traumatic or traumatizing, yeah. is that when like, if you work with clients or if we are meeting with people or listeners are like, Hey, I have been in this level of hurt for two weeks. That's not getting better. Like, is that a warning sign for you of when like seek professional advice, like seek professional testing, whatever it may be, like do the work, like the yeah. 30 days is the, the period. Is that? Yeah, I hear the question. And I think the biggest thing is anytime that we do something that's going to hurt for more than seven days, you'll know it pretty much immediately. The key is going, is this going to hurt for two days or three days? It's going to hurt for four days or five days. Like if you go and do a workout, a good workout at minimum is going to leave you sore for how many days? Two. Two at minimum. Right. Two to four. If you worked out too hard and you're like, that muscle is still giving me feedback five days later, six days later, I probably overdid it. But you'll know when you do something immediately when you wake up the next day and you're like, yeah, it's going to hurt for two weeks. Now we're talking about we've really, really done some damage. The question is, is whether or not we know what to do to uh, aid that process without needing outside support. Mm -hmm. So here's the way I would answer it. If you do something that's going to hurt for more than seven days, you're going to know immediately Go ahead and start the process of figuring out what it looks like to recover. If you can do it on your own, great. If you don't know how to do it on your own, you're going to need to seek outside support, right? Nobody gets a gunshot wound and goes, I'm going to wait it out. Right. <laughs> it's like, we are going to need, is it a triage situation? Is it a recovery situation? Is it a rehab situation? Um, there's different ways of looking at it, but I think it comes back to, have you done the work to have enough self-awareness to ask yourself the question, how long is it going to take me? to recover and resolve this particular pain. And if you go, man, I've been working on this for 10 years. It doesn't mean that you failed. It doesn't mean that it hasn't been an effective 10 years. It means that if you want that thing to change or you want that thing to be managed differently or go away and you've been working on it for 10 years and it hasn't changed, that's, a prob that's probably a more appropriate time to go, what does support look like in this mm -hmm. space? Right. For somebody who has structural compression on all four sides of my brainstem, I have a lot of damage around structural parts of my brainstem and, and my brain. I have a Chiari malformation that's a pretty significant one. It's called a, it's a bilateral 14 millimeter herniation of both tonsils, right? So it's a long story short, I have a plumbing issue in my brain. There is a cork in a place that should not have a cork. And it's like putting your thumb on top of a hose pipe. If I am upright, seated or standing, I am pressure washing my brain. If I lay down, it's less intense. So for me, one of the biggest strategies I've had as a patient is going, I've been dealing with this for 25 years. I want it to go away. And the healthiest thing that I've learned is structurally, anatomically, as a limitation of matter, for my mental and emotional health, for my psychological health, I have to stop 
finding a way to get rid of this as an issue. That's not going to be my story. Mm -hmm. My story is what is the healthiest way for me to navigate this particular thing in a way that isn't so difficult as often as it has been. So for me, change and health isn't getting rid of my migraine history or no longer having migraines. My pursuit of health is managing them in a way that makes them less intense, less frequent, and makes them last for a shorter period of time. And that for me is a healthier version of myself. It's less complications around chronic pain, not the absence of chronic mm -hmm. pain. So I think that's some of those strategies around when we feel this pain come up, what's our support look like? Right. You know? Right. And you've mentioned a few times the self-awareness. And I kind of want to wrap up this conversation for our listeners that are maybe like new to this whole topic, like what self-awareness really even is or some strategies, but do you have any tips or kind of like advice for those that are really interested in this? They want to get to know themselves better yeah. on starting the journey to self-awareness. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing is self-awareness is, is built in the part of the brain that registers touch so our ability to be self-aware means that we have to be aware that we are a self, we have a body. Um, so I think one of the most practical ways to do it is get more familiar with how your body actually operates. How do you move? How do you, how do you function from even a functional medicine standpoint? What's my blood work? What's my, what's my relationship with exercise? What's my relationship with walking? You know, one of the best the practical things that somebody can look at is they've now got a documentary on Netflix, which is great because I've been following his work for about a decade, but the gentleman who created the field of, and the, of, and the study of blue zones, areas oh, in yeah. the world that have a high, yes. high number of centenarians. They now have a, a documentary on Netflix called hundred year lifestyle. Everything about blue zones and everything about hundred year lifestyles is powerful. But the number one thing in that documentary and in the books that they say is correlated between all of the people that they studied is regular activities of daily movement, 5,000 steps a day, just walking. Self-awareness is built off of being able to know that you have a body and then being able to control that body. So your body is the answer in almost every situation. Sometimes people like me, we have compromised bodies. So you can be self-aware as a physical experience, how you feel the world, how you move in the world. And then you can be self-aware in a psyche, psychological experience. What are my emotions? What are my thoughts? And I think the blue zone can be a really helpful resource. But then uh, another really great helpful resource for self-awareness is I think the Enneagram is great. Just learning a little bit more about that. Um, I really enjoy uh, my personal, one of my personal mentors is, um, wow, I just drew a blank as soon as I said that. That's wild. <laughs> Russ Hudson, gosh, Russ, I'm, I'm sorry. He's uh, the RH is Riso Hudson Enneagram type indicator. So the H in that is a gentleman. I love his work. Um, but I think honestly, the, the biggest thing with self-awareness is, especially as leaders, anybody who's listened to the podcast, one of the, the best questions sometimes is to ask people, what's it like being on the other side of me? Can you tell me what how you experience me? Um, there's some great studies that were done that said the single greatest attribute of a CEO for success of their company is increased self-awareness. So if it's a podcast, if it's a book, if it's a TV show, um, the idea of being able to step back and go, am I aware of what I am going through in this body? And am I also aware of how I react? Because the single greatest piece of self-awareness is when you are triggered, that you know it and you know why, and then you know what to do. Most of us don't know why we're triggered and we don't even know that we're triggered. Mm -hmm. So another book that I would give that I think is really, really approachable and very, very good is The Wisdom of Your Body by Hilary McBride. Um, she's a PhD psychiatrist that specializes in a field called AEDP, okay. Advanced Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy. It sounds wordy and messy, but uh, I think Deb Dana's work and her books around polyvagal theory are helpful, mm -hmm. but... I think one of the most digestible, most approachable books of going, well, how do I build self-awareness is the wisdom of the wisdom of my body, the wisdom of your body. I think it's the wisdom of your body. I've just lost it. But the wisdom of the body by Hilary McBride is a great on-ramp as well. Well, I'm thinking about how, what kind of energy you give off in the world. Mm -hmm. And when I went on this entrepreneur retreat, we had to write our obituary and yeah, it was actually a life-changing experience for me. I remember uh, mine in a coffee shop in Texas 11 years ago. Very, very good exercise. It is like it's for powerful. the self-awareness yeah. of like who you think you are versus who you actually are. Like what would people say? 
at your funeral and how are you evaluating that? Because I think maybe we all have a version we want to show up as, but maybe that's not what we're actually showing up as. And I think that gap is exactly what we're talking about of self-awareness. It is. And I think, you know, one of the simplest things that we can do on a regular basis, I I do it with my three-year-old and he can check in real quick, or I do it with a 45-year-old in the office and they can check in too. And a check-in is just that you take a hand and you put it on your own sternum and you just shift it just a bit. And as soon as you do it, it'll cue your body to breathe. So you're like, can I find safe touch with my own hand on my own body? Am I willing to put my hand on my own body? Can I move in a way that allows me to breathe, moving my hand, moving my breath? And can I be aware that I'm not sure exactly what I'm even aware of, right? But the the fact that we can connect our brain to our own body, this brain-body connection, I call it functional psychosomatics, that you're functionally connecting your psyche and your psychology to your own soma, your own body. People are like, man, that's really complicated. I don't know how to do all of the, I I don't know a counselor. I don't know a book. I don't have time. You, if you are above ground and you still have a hand, can put your hand on your own chest and take a single deep breath. If you do that, it's called a check-in. If you check in and just take a deep breath and remind yourself that you can find some measure of safe touch, some measure of safe movement, then you'll find some measure of safe connection and you can make some measure of safe choices. So finding safety is about safe touch, safe movement, safe connection, and safe choices. And you can accomplish all of that by putting your own hand on your chest and taking a deep breath and start from there. And there is no side effects to that. And you can implement it right now as you're listening. Um, This was wonderful. We loved having you on here. Thank you so much, Dr. Jerome. And I will put your practice information in the show notes. So you guys make sure you check it out. I'll link also to the book, The Wisdom, The Wizard of the Body, The Wisdom. I'm going to tell you, I know it's The Wisdom of the Body. I think it's a great pivot. The Wisdom of the the Body. (laughs) But it's a real thing. It might also be a wizard. Yeah, the body is a wizard. It's it's definitely a (laughs) gamble. But this was wonderful. I really appreciate it. You guys, I highly suggest getting his book. I actually was gifted his book for Christmas by Sarah Genka, our dietitian. And um, if you guys are interested in all of this, dig deeper, ask the questions. I think that is really our summary of all of this is check in with yourself, ask the questions, dig deeper, learn more about yourself because then you can show up in the world as the best version of yourself, which is what this whole podcast, it's about little by little, little becomes a lot. And it's sometimes not knowing the Enneagram to perfection. Like I don't understand the depths of the Enneagram that Dr. Jerome knows, but I'm able to kind of identify my staff, like with kind of where they're at right now and what do they need? And, um, it's a very valuable tool. So thank thank you. you for the time. I appreciate it. It was a gift to be here. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, remember, little by little, a little becomes a lot. Even the smallest changes over time can lead to total mind and body transformation. I'd love for you to stay connected with at Dr. Kristen Oja and at Stat Wellness on Instagram. And if you have any questions, be sure to reach out. I'd love to hear from you.